Where's Where's Mike? The Dale Jr. Download. Dirty Mode Media. This is a production of Dirty Mode Media. Volume up. Dale Jr. Download in three, two. Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download. I'm doing this show solo. Well, not really. I still got Matthew Dillner. Leah's still here. Uh, the only person missing is our co-host, Mike Davis. Mike is on vacation uh, he, he really needed one, so uh, we were happy to see him take it, uh, spend some time with his family. Uh, Ray Evernham is the guest today. I don't know why it took so long to get <laughs> such an amazing guest on our show, but this is going to be a great one. A lot of great stories, and who knows where it's going to go. Man's done a little bit of everything. All right, so let's get the show started. I'm Dylan Hart Jr. This is Lost Speedways. The green flag up. Out of turn number four. We are racing. Let's watch them, watch them as they wham, bam, bam. I'm Dylan Hart Jr. This is Lost Speedways. I'm about to embark on a journey. I'm about to embark on a To see and feel the soul of my sport. Cross Speedway. The winner of the Disney Modified Event. Some great news. I don't even know where to begin. Lost <laughs> Speedways. All right. If you haven't heard about it, Lost Speedways is a television show um, created by Dirty Mo Media. It is a show about abandoned racetracks, okay? And let me start by telling you how, uh, you know, why we'd make a show about that. I was into abandoned stuff, theme parks. I would uh, Google online or um, follow uh, handles on Instagram. And typically what you're seeing in those type of uh, posts or, or handles is, you know, just abandoned houses or theme parks, anything. There's a lot of stuff that was built in the last, you know, 80 years. Technology, big giant things overseas. Maybe they had to do with World War II or whatever. Um, but a lot of that stuff, the technology obviously get, becomes obsolete, and it's just it's just left there. Some strange, huge structures that are built all over the country. Um, and even, uh, you know, even... Another another example, okay. I'm 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 if I'm losing you, let me bring you back. <laughs> the uh, the railroad down to Key West is a great example of that. So we drive, you know, I had a house in Key West for a I didn't while. Know about that? I had a house in Key West for a while. There was a uh, there was a man Flagler, I believe was his last last name, that uh, commissioned to build a railroad in night in the 1900s, uh, and it took uh, you know 10, 15 years, whatever, to complete this railroad. It wasn't there very long because a hurricane came through in the 30s, I believe, and destroyed it. But 
there's remnants of that railroad. And really? Yeah, the, the original uh, Highway 1 to get down there was built on the same causeway, yeah. uh, uh, you know, and structures as the railroad uh, until uh, they eventually made uh, a newer bridge and so forth. But if you drive from Homestead, which I've done a lot, to Key West or back, yeah. either way, you're going to see a lot of that infrastructure from the original railroad. Uh, that's cool to me. I love history like that. Um, I love finding it. One of the greatest examples of this is the Titanic. I know that every time I bring this up to anybody, they laugh. <laughs> Mike Davis picks on me about it. Tony Mayoff. But really, I think that the first, um, my first sort of, uh, what lit the fire, I guess, to, to, to create a show about lost speedways was when they were hunting for the Titanic. I remember back, you know, if you guys, I'm 45. I remember back in, uh, I don't know when they found this Titanic, but I remember them looking for it. It was such a mystery, you know, and this thing had sunk and nobody knew, uh, you know, nobody it, nobody knew anything else about, you know, the fact that it hit an iceberg and sunk. So they're looking for it forever, and, you know, nobody could find it. It was this really big deal. Finally... Uh, somebody finds it, right? This guy finds it, and it's this huge story all yeah. across the country. And now there's these, you know, artifacts, and there's these museums, and there's people going to look at this stuff. And Movies, a movie made about it, all this stuff, right? So, I think, um, you know, I got really curious about sunken ships, lost ships, lost stuff, right? Mysteries, yeah. right? Um, and then it became, uh, you know, it. It moved from, like, the sea or the ocean to land. You know, there's a lot of lost stuff out here that's a mystery that people stumble up on, and there's no no, no reason or rhyme to what happened, right? There's a story, but you got to uncover it and dig. Obviously, I grew up in racing. You know, it just took a long time, but the two paths, kind of two things, two curiosities sort of crossed. And, and, and so about 12... 14 years ago, I don't know, a long time ago, I created, I started pinning uh, racetracks that I could see on a Google map, right? So I'm on my computer at home, in between racing online and doing all the fun stuff, talking to my buddies. I would, you know, sort of, I had this book about, um, a, you know, defunct racetracks. Uh, it's sort of a history of racetracks that, that used to be. And I started looking at the coordinates and seeing if there was any remains of these racetracks, just yeah. for fun, just skimming the skimming the old uh, Google Earth and all that. And if I found one, I'd mark it. And I started, you know, I started creating this map. And I mean, you know, I worked on it off and on uh, throughout throughout the years, and would end up with about 250 to 300 tracks on my map. All the while, um, Matthew is doing the exact same thing. I know Matthew because he works in racing, but we're not like, um, you know, we're not communicating so much so that we would, we would know that one or the other is doing this exact same activity. So you're creating a map you know, during the same time frame as I'm creating a map. We hired you to come work here for Dirty Mo Media, and we kept telling each other, man, we need to do a show. We need to do a show about this. I want to show you my map. I didn't know whether this was... Uh, enough of an interesting story for television 
Um, we were creating a lot of content for podcasts. Uh, we were create, creating a lot of content on YouTube. So maybe it's a maybe it's a you know maybe we do little six five minute blurbs on on these tracks on YouTube. I don't know. Didn't know if anybody would want to watch this stuff. It was definitely intriguing to me. But every time I would try to go show my map to somebody, yeah, I, I would get a you know I couldn't get, I couldn't hook them. Could I didn't see the same fascination in them that I was having for this experience, right? So it made me concerned about doing a show. But anyways, man, we kept talking about it, kept talking about it. And I want I had a vision of doing the show where we, we basically just talk about making the map, how we made the map. We use a lot of imagery of Google Earth and, and um, Google Maps and, so, and, and sort of make it about us making the maps and, and discovering these tracks and finding new tracks, right, and, and yeah. understanding exactly what's left of these places, if anything. Because well, we're got, still doing that. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, behind the scenes, I mean, me and you were Last on this. Night. We're on this chat. We're on this chat message together with a few other guys that are that are hunters, you know, for these tracks, and still we're still curating our maps, right? Well, how many tracks do we have now? Over two thousand. Now that we've came together, there's about six or so of us. We have a, a map that we've sort of jo- merged all our stuff, and we have over two thousand tracks, right? Um, so we're still working on that. Our, our, our passion for making the map and understanding where these tracks are and what's left is still happening. But my vision for the show was real short-sighted, and that's where my concern came in for whether people would enjoy seeing it. When we plug you and Dirty Mo Media into uh, the creation of the show, it exploded. We went to, um, you know, we... we we picked. We had eight episodes, so we had to find eight tracks. Um, COVID made that difficult, but anyways, we go to these seven race tracks, and you guys, you guys brought so much more to the show than I ever imagined was possible. We were able to connect to the people that raced at these tracks. They're part of the show. Uh, we get a historian who's well-versed in that specific racetrack itself to tell us what the track meant to the community. So we get a real understanding of what the track, the impact that the track had on that area, which is important. It helps you, it helps sort of bring the track to life so you can almost understand what it might have been like. Yeah, what it might have been like. To go there and look at it today is a great, fun sort of mystery. There's There's a lot of beauty, sadness, all those emotions when you're walking around a track today uh, that has been abandoned for many years but you guys were able to get the stories and the people involved to sort of bring it back to life so we could almost see what it would have been what it almost imagine and feel what it was like when the track was working and functioning uh, which I thought was I didn't know would be possible to do and that component is what made the show worthy of being on on Peacock right so anyway as you could tell I'm extremely proud of, of this project. I'm proud of all the guys at Dirty Mo Media for all the hard work. You would not believe how the show came together and uh, the work that was done and the effort that was put into it. The COVID put a lot of restrictions on our abilities, and everybody went the extra mile. We crossed our T's and dotted our I's all the way to the last second <laughs> before we were to uh, turn, this all, turn this in to Peacock. Uh, it was a it was a really amazing effort, uh, and so we're getting a great response. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you. You know, we're getting a great response. You know, I know you had some reservations about doing the show initially, and you saw how it started to come to life. 
So that was a, a pleasant surprise in yeah. a way. But this response, I think the um, the the fear too was that um, this show to do this show was our idea, right? Yeah. This usually typically <laughs> when we're when we're when we get involved in a show, it's somebody brings the idea to us and yeah. plugs us into it and says, "Hey, man, would you want to be a part of this?" Well, this was our idea, and we were kind of put, putting our necks on the line. Yep. And some a lot of people in the industry and and with NBC and so forth. Uh, put their necks on the line as well to to help us put this make this happen. What were some of the best responses you think you got? Well, you know, I don't know that there's any that's there's not a best response okay. that sort of stands out. It's just the fact that it's universal. It's all positive. Nobody's the only thing people are complaining about is wanting more episodes. <laughs> um, and the funny yes. thing the, the the thing that I love to do is show them our map and say, yeah. look, we got two thousand potential episodes here. Yeah. Um, because I, I take a screenshot of that map, and it's it's probably about uh, six months old, so there's several hundred tracks <laughs> missing on it. But it still gives you an idea of like how how much potential how much potential there is out there as far as stories. We did the first season on tracks that we knew enough about that we had confidence in. Um, I'm so eager to really take some gambles on some of these tracks that we know nothing about, yes. and really go uncover some of the stories there. All of them have. Those stories. Yes. We're not going to go to a racetrack that is a dud. <laughs> All of them have uh, tragedy and triumph and, and success and failure involved in them. Um, you don't, you know, that's just part of racing. Anywhere you go uh, around the world, these tracks have got a story to tell. So Now, now with season one out, though, uh, you know, you've been able to look at some of the episodes and whatnot. <laughs> You got to come on three of them. I know, like in the past, when we I was doing kind of my Lost Speedways yeah. thing, and you were doing your deal, you know, you'd get on, say, a Periscope with me, and be like, "Oh man, why didn't you invite I me?" It. <laughs> and it's like now you got to be boots on the ground on a few episodes. How, like of those of that those explorers, what what really stood out to you? Because that's a new experience for you. Well, you're right. Um, I've been creating this map for all these years. I've only went to a couple racetracks uh, on that map. You have been to, to many, you know, and, and Lost Speedways has been something that you've taken a lot further than I have. You've, you've really been more proactive than I have to go see these places and see what they look like. And so I was eager, even before we started doing the show, I mean, before you even came to work here, you know, you were working out on the tour with us yeah. going to the racetrack when I was driving, and I'd see you on social media. Like, hey, man, I just went to this track 30 miles from the race, you know, 30 miles from wherever we're at <laughs> to this abandoned track. And I'm like, man, I would have went. I would have went. Why didn't you? You got to let me know when you're going to those. I'd, I'd, and I'm sitting there going, dude, you're like Elvis, man. I'm like, really? What? Well. I'm like, I didn't think you'd actually I do it. I thought we were better friends. <laughs> but honestly, um, you know, and, and so I was extremely envious of the experience uh, that you were having to see these tracks. You know, so now that we're doing a show, I'm telling you, I said it before, and I, it's truly genuine. I'm the, it the it. I'm just it's selfish. My the the reason why I love being a part of the show is selfishly. I it gets me to these racetracks. Yeah. Right. Um. Yeah, we're creating a great show, and, and people are loving it, and and I want to I want to do another season and just keep digging. Yeah. Um, but selfishly, yeah. I mean, that's the best part about it for me. I love the stories. I love hearing about the drivers, the community, and all that. But honestly, I just want to see it. To, I just want to see it today. And you know me. I love to look around on the ground and explore oh, yeah. and find what the— Freaking Magellan. Yeah, well, I, 
it's obvious. Like <laughs> if you're standing there, there's a go. Okay, there's a guardrail, and and I can see the banking, yeah. and I want to find more. Right? Well, you're finding crap that I mean, I was shocked. Like at, at uh, I think it was Okanichi, yeah, where we were at, and it's like you're there for like. Two hours and you're just like, oh, I found this. Oh, I found this. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what the hell, man? Yeah, we found beer cans that, uh, you know, the bottle. So we, the cool part. So that's a great example. So we're at, we're at Okanichi. The place closed in 1968. Um, we found this big, uh, we found this big jar that was buried. I'm saying intentionally, absolutely. There's no way that thing just yeah sunk down in the ground like that. It was about a, a 12 inches tall. And uh, probably about eight to ten inches in circumference, and somebody had dug a hole and put it in the ground, and 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 there was a lid on it, and I don't know what was in it, maybe nothing, but somebody had put that there for a reason. Uh, it had nothing to do with racing, probably, uh, but it was interesting to find like a that time capsule or right. something. Right? They they some somebody was hiding money in that or something. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe drugs. Who knows what was in that? Right? Some somebody in the seventies or eighties might have been using it to 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 as a secret hiding spot. Um, but we walked on the interior of the racetrack. Yeah. We were walking, uh, probably about 50 yards from the back straightaway. Uh, so I'm 50 yards from the actual racetrack backstretch and there's a fence line. And apparently that's the original fence line where spectators had pulled up, would pull up, back up, whatever, and, and watch the race. And so imagine people lined up on that fence with their arms up on the fence and, and sitting up on top of the posts and yeah, all that which stuff, is crazy, right? Yeah. Just watching. <laughs> Well, that right there is where you're going to find a lot of stuff. We found beer cans, just fans discarding whatever, right? Because when they closed the track, they walked away. Yeah. Nobody went in there and cleaned it up. Nobody Supposedly they left up. the programs and yeah. all the stuff. Nobody picked trash yeah. up or anything. It's just all laying there, right, underneath the leaves and so forth of, you know, 30 years of weather and, and nature. We walked, so we found some stuff on that old fence line. The fence is no longer there, but the posts and a couple of – there's it's, it, you know – by looking on the ground, that that's where sort of the boundary was for the spectators to the racetrack. A lot of stuff laying right there. We walk up into the grandstands where and the, the wooden uh, seats were, not the concrete, but where the old wooden grandstands were. They, they're they long gone. The studs and posts. Uh, there are stumps over there stumps where people so would forth. sit. So. Well, all that all that's still there. We found tons of bottles, yeah. old liquor bottles. And we would we could date those bottles. And well, even, yeah. First, we didn't know that, and well, then I'm sitting there. I'm how did Dale all of a sudden fades out, and I'm like you're off over here, and I'm like, what is he doing? And I see you're on your phone, so I yeah. figure you're texting Amy or something. Next thing you know, you're like, ah, yeah, I got it. Like, look at the bottom of the bottle. <laughs> so the, yeah, the bot the numbers on the bottom of the bottle tell you the manufacturer what yeah. was in it and when it was made, when it was bottled, and so that bottle right there was left. Last from race. the last race, and it was dated 1968. It's crazy, but you didn't get to go to three of them. So you went to Okanichi, you went to New Asheville yeah. with me, and you went to um, Metrolina, of course, the first episode. Yeah. Then the three other episodes, you didn't get a chance to really lay eyes on those no. until we we did the production. Yeah, not fair. You know now, <laughs> I know you wanted to be there, but now like looking back at those ones, what one stood out for you? Of damn it, I wish I was there. Well, I'm, you know, all of them. I want to okay. go to every one of them. There's not, there's not a, there's not something in this that stands out mm-hmm. as far as tracks I missed or wanted to go to. I mean, I want to see them all. I want to experience all of them. Yeah, because you had Jungle Park, Hinchliff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of them. I, I, I can't, <laughs> to be honest with you, um, 
there's not going to be a track that 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 sort of is this uh, king of the mountain or or top of the top of the leaderboard for me. They all uh, mean something. Uh, they're all I'm, uh, the curiosity is sort of pegged for each one of them, right? Yeah. Because you just don't know what you're going to see and yeah. find. Uh, but man, I love it. I'm so glad that we were able to finally put this out there and it hit. People were happy. Um, I'm feeling confident that we might get to keep working on it. God, I hope for a season two. I'm feeling confident that we might get to do that. So I'll be real surprised. I think if if uh, if it's not an opportunity for us, you know, I feel confident that we could create it and people would want to see it. And uh, now that we got our legs underneath us, man, we yeah. we did that in uh, we did that with a lot of limitations. Yeah. All right. You know. Um, and plus, it's like the first show, even like you and I going on the explore, we'd never explored a track together, yeah. right? You guys could, t- you guys all in the room here, um, yeah, could could share real particulars about what what the limitations were. But for for people, you know, trying to create a show and shoot a show, you see it. I mean, all across, the, if you're watching TV, nobody's making original content right now. Everybody's playing reruns, yeah. Um, you know, because they can. It's hard. It's impossible to get everybody in one room to do this work. Uh, we were able to, you know, do this properly, safely, uh, with a very small staff and, um, you know, really everybody had, to, everybody had to do a lot of different jobs. It was kind of like, uh, uh, people think, uh, we're the New York Yankees, right? Cause yeah. we're, you know, involvement with, with Dale, like this big empire, but oh. it's like, to me, it felt like everybody thought we were a big stacker trailer. Yeah. And we were really towing in there with an open trailer and a tire yeah, rack yeah, and kicking yeah. their ass, you know. Well, the talent on this <laughs> the talent on this team at Dirty Mo Media yes. is evident when you watch the show. I was telling Mike that. So I saw the episodes as we were putting them together. But when you watch it on TV, yeah. man, this looks like it was done in L.A. This looks yeah. like it was done, you know, by the Editing best of the and, best. Yeah. Um, the sound, color, everything. I mean, obviously the content's really cool, but the the editing, sound, cuts, all that stuff is just so Huge. well done. So super proud of that. I think industry people across the, you know, if anybody that's in this industry of of production and, and television watches this, they're going to really, really commend the job done. Lost Speedways, man, it was a, it's a good, it's a good show. I'm proud of it. Peacock TV, man. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah, that's right. So let's be let's be sure people understand this part, the most important part. And we really didn't know this till it came out, <laughs> or we'd have told you. Um, it's on Peacock TV. That's the uh, streaming service from NBC. So you can go get the app uh, if you have a smart TV, uh, Apple TV, iPad, which phone, I have. Whatever. It, yeah, your phone. Get the app, and you can stream our show for free, you know, Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or the property. It's the location and neighborhood, Dalton. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when we say in-depth, we're talking deep in-depth. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, a home, 
This is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. A lot of other stuff going on this week, uh, this past week at the uh, Texas Motor Speedway. Yeah. Um, this might run a little long on open segment. There's we have a the lot All-Star, here. too. Well, we it's did crazy. have... I know, but I wanted to talk about Noah Gregson. Oh. All right, Xfinity. I was, I was wondering if you'd want to go there. Yeah, sure. So... We had a pretty – I thought the racing was great this weekend at Texas. You know, the cup race, I got a lot of opinions about that and what could have made that show a little bit better. But I think that they did a good job uh, as far as the track and the industry, NASCAR, um, not uh, not reapplying that uh, traction compound. I'm, I'm kind of over the traction compound That's right it. now. I think that we're, we're overdoing it a little bit. It's okay. Uh, it's an experiment. I'm not harping on anybody. I just hope that everybody's sort of taking note of exactly what's happening and, and, and we're making adjustments because I feel like um, maybe we're overdoing it a little bit. It's not uh, something maybe that needs to happen everywhere. When you look at Texas Motor Speedway and how much that track has aged, the color of the track really graying out. Yeah. And um, I haven't been there to put my hand on the surface, but uh, I imagine if you could take that traction compound away, Goodyear could be a little more aggressive with the tire. Um the, the tire is really good. They couldn't, they, you know, they didn't need to change the tire because it wasn't wearing. Well, the reason is, is because the tire <laughs> is bulletproof. The, why did Goodyear bring that tire? Because they can't take a risk on bringing anything less uh, or anything too soft or that might wear too fast because of the traction compound. They have so much. The grip. traction compound is such a moving target that Goodyear can't take risks. Right? Goodyear really can't understand where where the goalpost is. Really, and, and, and there's a lot of people. Just to clarify for somebody that's listening that, yeah. that doesn't understand, you know, I was listening to DBC yesterday, yep. and people mistaken a bad tire and a good tire, and I think Goodyear gets a bad rap there. Oh yeah, because they're making such a good tire yeah. that sometimes it might not be the best racing tire as far as the so the this product, is the but situation. It's a good quality tire, right? Um, they're going into these racetracks without any testing. There's no tire testing. There's no practice. There's no laps. You show up and you race. Yeah. All right. I want to put everybody that's listening. You're the CEO of the tire company, right? You own the tire company. All right. And you make uh, racing tires, but that's not your main business. Your main business is selling tires to residents, to you know, the public, right? You're selling tires and you're making millions of dollars, but you do this racing thing on the side to help promote your business. Okay. It's not a big money maker for you, but it helps you helps you you know stay relevant. You're the man. You're the CEO of this business. All right, I'm all. All right, I need you uh, to show up at Texas and give me a tire that's going to uh, not give me any problems. I don't know how fast the cars are going. I don't know how much load they're going to get in the corner. I don't know. You know, I don't know anything. I don't know. Uh, I can't give you any information about uh, what you might uh, what the cars might be doing around that racetrack you're going to probably bring me something really conservative i would expect you to bring me a tire that's 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 yeah. absolutely no question gonna be able to you know handle this handle the things that it might face and so you're going to shoot high right and i think that that's the box that goodyear's in yep. um and i think until we sort of dial back this traction compound usage i don't know that it's even necessary anymore at Texas, um, they can't even use all of it, right? They're, they put yeah. that traction compound all the way to the fence in three and four, okay? 
And as the guys are running on the bottom and running in that first lower groove of, of traction compound, they're throwing marbles up the racetrack. Well, that stuff's the traction compound's real sticky, and so the marbles don't just go to the fence like they used to. Mm-hmm. It sticks. It it sticks right in that outer groove. So now, every just outside the groove, super dirty, treacherous. It's like getting offline on a road course. Um, everywhere but in the groove is dirt, you know, and marbles. So the guys can't really move the groove up like we used to at Texas. I'm telling you, if they didn't PJ one the track, right? Mm-hmm. Those guys will be running a lot higher on the long run, really using that racetrack up. But you can't because it's too dirty. And anytime anybody would step outside of that line, man, they would just spin out or hit the wall. We saw it a couple times. That's a. I went a little further on that than I wanted to. No. But I hope that I hope that everybody is paying attention and we're making some adjustments because I think we kind of went a little far on that. Noah, so had a little had a little uh, situation. Uh, you know, Noah's been aggressive this year. Yeah. I don't really tend to tell my drivers how to drive. Obviously, you know, him and Justin get together. That's never great when the teammates are going to crash. But if you're going to race in the Xfinity Series with two to four cars on the racetrack every single race for over a decade, they're going to hit each other every yeah. once in a while. I don't really, um, I don't really get bent out of shape over what happens on the racetrack each weekend. It's more big picture for me. Are we making money? Are we are we are we, are we sustaining our business for our employees? Are we cons- are we consistently finishing well in the points and championships to be able to sort of meet our budget? Uh, things like that. If we're tearing up race cars every single week with one particular driver, that's when you kind of step in and say, "Hey, man, we're 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 spending a lot of money here." Those are the things I worry about. I don't really worry about. Oh man, you know you 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 hit the wall. You screwed up. You stepped over the line. Um, you know, guys are going to make mistakes. We can't get in there and micromanage what's going on on the racetrack. But I will say, this past weekend, I'm in the I'm in the NBC uh, booth doing the Xfinity race, and Noah gets into the back of that 18 car, and I was in a position where, hey, um, you know, I'm a car owner, uh, but when I get in that booth, I have to take that hat off, and now i got to yep. call it straight. I can't insulate my guys. I can't take care of them. And sometimes I'm much harder on them than the other guys, just to make sure the fans understand that I'm not there's no bias right yep um and it sucks but that's the way I got to call it they put me in the booth fans fans don't want nobody in there being soft and and going easy and or Just telling honesty yeah fans want that absolutely so Noah run over him uh the, the the 18's loose going up the track checking up checking up Noah you know gets in the back of him so I told Noah well I did have a conversation with him um I said, hey, man, I said, you're having a great year. I said, but think about it like this. Like, that happened on lap five. Everybody saw it. I had to say, look, it was early. That was uh, something that shouldn't happen that soon in the race. And I had to call it like I saw it, right? Um, you know, I've since had some conversations with Noah and, and, and his crew chief, Dave. They certainly feel like that um, we went a little hard on Noah. Uh, which I can understand. They have SMT data that they can look at on that 18 car and know exactly how much he dumped the throttle and all those things. But the kid never been there before, never been to Texas. He's running around Texas. like uh, Riley Herbst. Yeah, never been there. Yeah, Like, man, when you go to a track that you've never been at, it takes you maybe the whole There's weekend. There's no practice. Yeah, it takes you the whole weekend <laughs> to figure it out. You know, you go out there and your first 10 laps in practice are way off. You know, you're not doing anything right. So here he is, just trying to get around the track. <laughs> Poor guy. And, uh, 
you know, Noah's like, I ain't got time for this. Yeah. And so uh, it was a tough situation to be in, but I feel good about the way I handled it. I hate that if it bothered Noah or, or Dave or any of the guys here at Junior Motorsports. I mean, that's just – if I'm going to be calling them races, I got to call yep. them races the way any of them other guys in the booth would call yep. it. And then I got to get out of there and then, you know, come back over here and put my owner's hat back on. That's tough. And say, hey, man, I got that. When I'm in that job, I got to do it this way. And when I'm, when I'm here, you know, when I'm not calling those races, I'm, I'm, I'm the owner, you know. Can I ask you a question about that? Sure. Noah has showed a lot of speed and a lot more confidence this year, obviously. Does this remind you at all, in a way, of Ernie Irvin? Wow, yeah, that's a great analogy. Ernie Irvin came in, and a lot of people that are listening um, may remember Ernie coming into the season super aggressive, right? Yeah. Driving for DK Ulrich. Boy, he took DK's like white number two yeah. and run that thing up in the front like it never been before. I remember him racing it. We're at Bristol. He stayed out. They had like a little short run. Everybody comes down pit road, and he stayed out. It's a white Pontiac, uh, and he's leading the race. And, I mean, he's driving the dang wheels off this thing. He eventually got loose and fenced it off turn four. But that car, it never run that way, never run that good. And those were the moments that really secured him those future opportunities, what he was able to do in DK's car. But he was wild. Now when he gets in the fast stuff, Morgan McClure, the four car, he starts hitting everything, yeah. right? right? Big wreck on the back straightaway at Daytona in the 500. He got blamed for. They were on him, yeah. right? Um, like they are with Noah right oh, now. Yeah. Drivers were complaining about him to the media. Uh, he, he was getting it from all sides. So it's very similar. Uh, and Noah's 22 years old. Yeah. People forget that. Yeah. Noah is, uh, he's got a lot going on in his life. Um, and he's going to make, he's not going to be perfect, right? He's not going to be perfect. But what I said, uh, what I said to Noah was kind of like that. Uh, if you, what I think about, I say, I'll, I'll say this. What I think about that is if that, if that thing with the 18 happens with two to go, five to go, is it a big a deal? The people, the people really hammered Noah's hard. It happened in lap five. That was the deal. And I told Noah, I said, man, I said, when you go into the chase, or the, I'm sorry, got to put a dollar in the jar. When you go into the playoffs, <laughs> when you go into the playoffs, you're going to have to drive that way when necessary. All right? If you, if you want to win the championship, you might have to throw the gloves off, right? Um, but if you... You don't want that reputation all year long, right? It's just like that race. It's not maybe the best thing to have that happen at lap five, but if it happened at lap five to go, two to go, people are going to see it a little differently. Some people are still going to call it the same way, but yeah. you get a little bit more of a break because it's at the end of the race. Time to go, right? So maybe think about the season that way. Yeah. You know, maybe don't be dumping guys at five races into the year. Maybe think, you know, man, I might, I might need to be aggressive at the end of the season, so let me take a little vacation here. And uh, go easy on these guys. Take care of them. And then when it chips are, you know, when our chips are on the table, I'm coming there and take what's mine. So, uh, but number one rule, right? If you're if you're an owner of a race team and you got a driver doing this kind of stuff, the number one rule is you don't want to slow them down. No. Right. So when you sit down and you try to have a conversation about it, you just don't want to slow them down. Because you got to have those guys hungry and, and going Confidence. out there and confident and driving hard. Um, it's a really tough thing to try to tell somebody how to clean it up a little bit, but yet not take the edge off, right? Not take the speed out of them. 
So, you know, but again, Noah's 22 years old. He's young. He's learning. I'm not going to get in his way. I'm going to let him keep on going, keep on learning. Guy's going to make more mistakes. I'm going to promise you that. Everybody's going to do it. All these guys in that field, I mean, look at them. There's three, there was three 19-year-olds in the field Saturday. All the, there was one 50-year-old guy, David Starr. Nobody oh, yeah. in their 40s That's in the crazy. Xfinity race. Nobody in their 40s. Um, the next oldest guy to David Starr was Justin, I believe, at 36 years old. You're kidding me. No kidding. Holy crap. Young. That's what that series is all about now. The identity has changed. I wish they had more veterans to race with, but that's you know, com- that's that is conversation a, for another day. That is a great <laughs> conversation for another day. And I'm gonna be honest with you. I was on team get all the get all the cup guys out. I mm-hmm. was I was all about it when when they were talking about limitations and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh there's a lot of positives to not letting the cup guys run so much, but there's some negatives that we're starting to see or I'm starting to see. Yep. Uh, these young guys crave it. They crave the opportunity to race Kyle Busch and, and Harvick and all those other guys. They, they crave it. But they learn stuff by racing. We all them. know that. Yes. Yeah, they learn a lot, but they want to race them. And something that I heard from Harrison Burton, I'm going to end the open segment on this. Harrison Burton said in an interview, with, we were actually a conversation we were having with him, he said, racing against Kyle Busch, I learn a lot, but beating Kyle Busch can change my career. Wow. So, these guys, I mean, in a, in a time where all these guys like Noah, Harrison, they're all trying to make their mark, right? They're all trying to, 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 to land that amazing opportunity, that next opportunity in the Cup Series. Well, beating Kyle Busch puts them on the map. And so, that stuck with me. That, that stuck with me when he said, beating Kyle Busch could change my career. I was like, wow, okay. Well, maybe Kyle Busch might need to be out there a little more often than five races a year. Maybe Kyle, you know, maybe these other cup guys. I remember the Xfinity races back in the day used to have 15, 25 yeah. cup guys in the race. Yep. You know, I, I don't know what the balance is, all right? I don't know what the balance is. But that was interesting to hear from, from a young guy. So much wisdom from Harrison Burton. NASCAR history and heritage come alive at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Celebrate my fellow inductees Donnie Allison, Jimmy Johnson, and Chad Knauss with their class of 2024 artifacts enshrined in the Hall of Honor. Don't miss the Ford Performance Showcase. It's a new inside NASCAR exhibit that showcases the Ford Mustang's next-gen car through its design and innovation. The latest edition of Glory Road explores over 75 years of racing history, with its cool 33-degree banking and 19 cars on display on Mondays and Fridays, there's guided tours that take you behind the scenes with incredible stories and access to a NASCAR Hall of Fame insider. Or you can explore the hall at your own pace with the new mobile hub. It's a digital experience. Get behind the wheel of a realistic iRacing simulator. Or you can learn how fast-paced pit stops work with the Pit Crew Challenge. From the legends who shaped the sport to the new heroes earning a spot in the record books, the NASCAR Hall of Fame delivers an unforgettable experience. Book your visit to the hall today at nascarhall.com. All right, look at that. Oh, you put a new car in the background there. I like it. Yeah, we had to move some stuff around. I'll give a little love to the Wood Brothers. (laughs) Heck yeah, man. Heck yeah. As promised. Today's guest on the show is Ray Everham. Man, where have you been? 
seems like you I, I kept thinking in my head I'm like he's been on our show but you haven't this is your first time and uh, I feel bad because you're one of my good friends and you're a legend you're an amazing storyteller why in the heck haven't I had on, had you on this show already but welcome uh, I love the background all the all the fun things quite the collector so I don't even know where to start you're a Hall of Famer see your shirt there Hey, buddy, you yeah. are now too. How? What does that mean? <laughs> like they send you a bunch of those polos, or you know, I, and you'll see. You know, you'll 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 get to see here shortly. But uh, man, it, it's uh, I, I can tell you that it's been the greatest thing in my life has been w- when you're honored by the the people that you man, you just you're so happy just to be a part of it, and they honor you with with something like this. And as when you stand up there on that stage, like I had to do that night, it's uh. Man, it's a fire hose of emotion because you feel so proud, yet just so humble. I, I, it's hard for me to explain, and the cool thing is I know that you're going to get to feel it soon. Then you get a lot of these really cool shirts, too. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So, man, you've uh, done everything. You've raced. You worked for IROC. You worked for a lot of race teams over the years, and then you became the crew chief for Jeff Gordon. You became a car owner in a mega deal that brought Dodge back to NASCAR. Um, you've been in television, creating your own shows. You have your own garage there where you create a lot of awesome, you know, you re- you bring history back, which is a lot of fun. And I just recently have gotten to know you, I you know, since uh, I guess when uh, they kind of brought you in to, to help a little bit at HMS uh, while I was still there racing. And it kind of gave me the opportunity to, to connect with you and, uh, we share some interest in, you know, history and our love for the history of the sport is really pure. And uh, you do a lot of hard work in that area, uh, but it's all fun. Um, but anyways, it's it's created an opportunity for us to become friends. And I've always wondered, like, is the person that you are today, is that who you were when you were racing? What was your personality like? How has it changed Throughout the years, looking at the videos of you as a crew chief for <laughs> Jeff Gordon, you were extremely competitive, right? You had to be. It was it was a very cutthroat sort of environment. Um, you had to be sly and 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 secretive and and mysterious and tough. Uh, but as a driver, start start from the beginning. You're you're charming, very happy go lucky, friendly guy. Now I know <laughs> you, probably, you couldn't have always been that way. What kind of race car driver were you on the racetrack and off the racetrack? Oh man. Gosh, you, you know, if you talk to some people who raced against me, I was probably fun to watch. I probably wasn't as focused as I needed to be. You know, I, I just felt like you just get it, drive it. I probably uh, probably wasn't as, um, as I said, focused. You know, I, 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 I had a lot of fun driving, got to race with some great people in the modifieds and, and things like that. But I really, when I went to work for Jay Signori and Roger Penske, that kind of straightened me out about getting focused, you know, and it was, uh, got a lot more serious about my stuff and started to, to run the IROC cars and then run the modifieds and do a lot and do a lot better. And, and uh, you know, I saw Matthew and them, you know, kind of laughing and shaking his head. Cause when I was, when I was racing and driving, I was kind of a partier. I hung out with a lot of the guys. Really? And, it was about it was about the after party. You know what I mean, it was Saturday. Saturday night was a was a good place to meet at the racetrack to have a good party afterwards. You know, did you um, party at the track? Oh, oh yeah, because you know at Wall Stadium we, we used to we used to run. You know, we'd run the feature, and then they'd leave all the lights on, and we'd all we we pull all the trailers and trucks around there. You know, and we'd all just kind of 
get our coolers out and talk about the night and about two o'clock in the morning, they'd flick the lights on and off and let us know it was time to go. And sometimes we'd go home and sometimes we would just, we just go back out in the parking lot and turn the headlights on. But it was, uh, that was our Saturday night ritual. You know, it was uh, a lot of fun, a lot of camaraderie, but you know, we, we certainly weren't thinking about racing somewhere on Sunday. <laughs> you know, were you, was it your, I'm trying to understand like where, where were you going with your driving career? What was your hope? My goal was to drive in Indianapolis. I wanted to run Indy cars. That's, really? that's why I did the, I was so interested in the, uh, the open wheel cars. I just, I had dreamt of, of racing an Indy car at Indy in, uh, that, that's largely why I took the job at IROC and went to work for Roger Penske because I just knew that, man, when Roger meets me and, and uh, he sees me drive my modified, he's going to want to stick me right in his Indy car. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, uh, so it, you know, what I didn't know is that I was going to learn so much from Jay Signori and Roger Penske, and, and uh, they did let me test the IROC cars a lot. Like, I got to test the IROC cars everywhere we went and talked to several um, several times with 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 Mr. Penske about driving, you know, something, they were going to put me in an ARCA car. I begged him, I begged him and begged him and begged him to let me drive the Indy car. And, and, uh, that's just another reason it shows that Roger Penske is much smarter than me. Cause he probably saved my life. He thought there's no way as wild as this guy is. I'm putting him in a, in an Indy car, you know, um, because it, it's real easy as a crew chief or to stand back and, and, and preach about, Hey, you know, you guys got to roll the corner. You got to let off the gas where I was kind of wide open. I think that's why I always, I, I was, I was good in the sprint car, you know, won a lot of racing stuff on the, on the dirt with the sprint car. Cause you could run that wide open most of the time. So you, what all did you race? What all was you ran a modified on asphalt at wall stadium, new Egypt speedway, places like that, Flemington. And then you ran sprint cars too on dirt. Yeah. Well, I ran, I ran the sprint cars later on in my career, but early in my career, I ran uh, late models, like, or we used to call them modern stocks, you know, yeah. back then but I ran the late models. And then we ran a, a sportsman series where they were kind of like modifies, but we were only allowed 318 cubic inches. And that was the old NASCAR way of doing things. NASCAR, you know, like we'd run new Egypt and some of the NASCAR tracks, there was modified and there were sportsmen. And sometimes you'd run together. And if you'd run your sportsman, your 318 cubic inch car with the modifieds and you finished like first sportsman, you could get as much money as modified would win the feature. And then they pay top sportsmen. So it was a pretty good deal really. And then I went, I moved up to the modifieds. And then I also ran what they call three quarter midgets, like a TQ midget. Yeah. Uh, ran, ran those things and, and uh, had a blast running around uh, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania with those. Uh, and uh, then I ran some dirt modifieds, those big, you know, the big boxy yeah. T cars. And, uh, and then we decided to run them things on pavement. And we ran, <laughs> we ran them on pavement. And then a bunch of us got hurt and, and uh, I got hurt at Flemington, and I always tell you, you were buddy, driving? Still, oh yeah, yeah. Big. And and uh, that if I hadn't got hurt in that car, I would never have have met Jeff Gordon. So how did that wreck happen? What happened there at Flemington? Oh man, they, we used to run these damn like four twenty lappers, and when they dropped the when they dropped the green, it was on right, you know. And it was like yeah, it was a madhouse running these, these twenty lap features and. When uh, I guess on, I hated them for that. And when they dropped the green flag on one of them, we got, we made one lap and I think we all got bottled up down in the corner. And I, I got in the, the, the back of uh, the car ahead of me and I got a little bit sideways and I turned the wheels to the right at the same time, somebody hit me in the back and it shot that thing across the track and it, it was an ambulance gate there and it went right 
smack into the ambulance gate sideways. And it was, uh, it was, it was a good lick. Yeah. And that hurt you pretty badly. Uh, gave me a head injury. Um, and it, it was, uh, you know, I was unconscious for three or four days and it took uh, three, four months to come back. And, and as I said, that was like, one of the things that, that again, I, I, I respect you for the most is, is you brought more attention to what we've got to do to keep drivers and safe and how serious a, a head injury can be and how much time it takes to, you know, and I, I'll tell you, it was years, years before I was able to get my depth perception and, and things like that back. Really? I tried to come back, get in, a, get in a race car and got in a race car way too soon and, and, uh, and almost hurt myself again. No kidding. So, at that time, it was time to go find a real job. <laughs> yeah, that's so scary to uh, knowing what you've accomplished in your life since then, and knowing the person you are over the last couple of years that I've gotten to know. It's so scary to imagine um, you being injured that way. And but you're like you said, it gave, it sort of turned you into a new direction. You were already working with IROC at this time. Yeah, that would have been, I got hurt in 91 and I had worked, I started at IROC 83 and, and worked with them through 89. And then in, in 90, I went back out on my own and, and uh, I was, I got pretty serious about my racing. I uh, learned a lot. I had, I had the dirt modified, I had the pavement modified, I had a midget and I had an ARCA car that we were going to run. And, Where were you uh, going to run the ARCA car? We were going to run the ARCA car at Pocono. Um, I had worked on I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it was that red coat steel tubing, number 38. So we had that car all ready to go. Okay. I was going to run it at Pocono. And uh, I, I had done a couple of cup races with a guy named Dick Johnson. You know, we uh, yeah. we, we rolled into uh, Sears Point, I think, for the first race. And, and uh, you know, Dick was Australian touring car champion and whatnot. And, uh, but he was uh, – he ran off in the tires. Yep. And he, he, uh, he, used, a, he used a couple um, words that they, they didn't get to beep out on TV. Yep. And it was funny because uh, he called Richard Petty uh, – uh, a name that they, <laughs> and then he uh he he, he might have dropped an f-bomb on on the thing there and uh it was just kind of funny i remember that and we got more press over him doing that than anything that we did for the rest of the time that we, we were together but but we had that car and we were going to do uh we we're going to do a lot of racing and then uh and then you know and i actually had met jeff gordon even before i got hurt and, and as soon as i got hurt um you know i i went uh again crazy crazy stuff you know you talk about timing but went down to work for alan kawicki alan and i had been friends and i've been doing some work for alan and he said come down and work for me and i was like ah man i don't know so <laughs> went to work for alan and three days we were throwing i mean i mean throwing stuff like tape measures at one another, oh, no. stuff like that yeah <laughs> yeah and uh i quit the day before the daytona 500 i was headed back to new jersey you probably remember preston miller from ford yes Preston Miller said, where are you going? I said, home. And he said, uh, hotel. I said, no, New Jersey, I'm done. And he said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And if uh, Preston put me over at Bill Davis Racing the next day, and if it hadn't have been for that chance deal, I mean, I, I, I'd have been, who, I could have been selling frozen yogurt or something on the Jersey Shore by now. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's just it's crazy how things work out. Well, I've got, I've seen pictures of you and you've shared with me um, working with Dave Marcus. When did that happen? Uh, all through my IROC career. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to, to see more about what was going on. And I said, Dave, I'd like to come down and help you. And Dave, Dave gave me my first shot at working on a cup car or a sportsman car. Uh, we, um, he said, look, I'll, I'll pay your gas to come down from New Jersey. I'll give you 
a place to sleep and I'll feed you. And, and I did that with Dave with several times. And he taught me a lot about what was going on with the races and, uh, you know, how the whole NASCAR system worked. And we actually ran good a couple of times, man. There were some times we led some races, uh, like at Dover. I know we led the race there for a while with uh, that Oldsmobile that he had and had so many spacers on the right front, you know, to keep the bias ply tire from rolling under the rear tie rod. Remember he's out spacing out. We broke some studs. And uh, one time, man, we were leading the, uh, it would have been a bush at that time at, uh, at Bristol and, uh, he was I, driving for somebody, man. We were leading that thing. I remember, and, uh, yeah, and he pulled in and got out. Well, they, when we went to make a pit stop, they had never tried to do anything with their guns, and all of the lug nut, all of the, the sockets wouldn't fit on the extended <laughs> studs, and we couldn't get the wheels off. <laughs> so, Dave, Dave, we sat there. We lost, you know, three, four laps or whatever, and Dave just got out and walked away. I know. I was watching that race. I think they played it on TV here recently, and uh, I was yeah. watching that race, and Dave gets out, and he goes, well, they, they wouldn't change the tires. <laughs> They're like, Dave, you were leading, and you're in the garage. You got out. Well, they wouldn't change the tires. Now we know the rest of the story. Yeah, we couldn't couldn't change the tires. <laughs> Jeez. That's yeah. hilarious. Wow. Oh, it was – I mean, it was that, – that, those days, you know, they were fun. They were like, all right, you ever do this or you ever do that? And it's like, well, no, okay, well, here's how you do it. And <laughs> here comes a pit stop, you know. So, you know, you end up working with Jeff Gordon and become this, um, you know – phenomenon uh dynasty but working at iraq uh you know you're a driver and you've been around drivers racing it in the modifieds and so forth but working with dave or going to the iraq series and working with those guys what did that teach you about other drivers and how to manage drivers how to work with drivers uh how to work did you have people skills out of the gate or did you have to hone that ability to communicate with those guys I'm from New Jersey, so they don't teach us people skills there uh, in Jersey. We got, got to kind of learn that. You know, um, one of the things I think that made the biggest difference is I got to work with the greatest drivers in the world at that time. You know, uh, Foyt, Andretti, Unser, your dad, um, you know, and you learn so much from those guys. I mean, we had Yarborough and Petty and, and you know, just – they were so gracious with their time and they were okay with asking why. And I remember even like Rusty Wallace and people like that, I'd be like, why, or how did you feel that? And, you know, I think that when I was working with that group of people that there's just certain things that they think about or that they are so comfortable in their environment that uh, a moment in time, you know, like a, a second to me and probably a second to you being a race driver and to Matt is all, different you know and i realized that those guys were so comfortable in their environment that they were where i'd be going around there at 150 just trying not to hit anything and that's what i'm thinking about and they're thinking about this and that you know um and you start to realize that when you talk to other drivers you pretty know quickly when a guy's giving you feedback um whether you know what he's thinking about and what it taught me was how to ask the right questions over and over again to get that driver to really break that down in his mind to give you the information so you could fix the car. And, you know, that, that IROC experience valuable uh, in my career, not just to the driver communication, but the organizational part. Yeah. You mentioned going to work for Bill Davis. What did they, what did they put you on as soon as you got there? They, you know, they, Bill Davis had a great program and I will tell you straight up, that was the most fun that I've ever had in my life working on a race team because it was only five or six of us. And we did everything we had, I think we had three cars, but we only used two of them. 
you know, they, they immediately put me on trying to get the chassis sorted out. So they had a really good motor program. They had a good body program. They'd been sharing a shop with Mark Martin and the number 60 car, the Winn-Dixie car. And, uh, but Jeff's cars were, uh, I guess they were, um, BSR cars. Billy has built them cars at that time. And, uh, when I went there, I said, well, where's this at? Where's that at? And, you know, they were good cars, but they hadn't really squared them up and they hadn't really gone through the bump and, and whatnot. And I knew a little bit uh, about that stuff, how important it was from working at IROC. And I just started to get the front ends right. And I came up with a combination that Jeff really liked. And then we just worked on making both cars the, the same. And, uh, you know, the, the probably the biggest thing I learned at, uh, at, at Bill Davis, though, is no matter – no matter how good your chassis is, you still got to have a good motor and a good driver because, you know, you got those two things. Those other cars are a lot easier to pass. When was the moment when you realized that Jeff had the talent? Oh, man. You know, Jeff and I met in uh, 1990. Andy Petrie called me up and he said, hey, Leo Jackson's son-in-law is going to run this deal, run this guy. I need you to come down here and help. I don't have time to do it. And I was like, man, I'm trying to race. And all. You know, I said, who's the kid? He said, Jeff Gordon. And I had just seen Jeff Gordon like on Thursday night thunder or whatever, run smack over some guy, like run smack over him, go down the straightaway on two wheels and still win the race. I was like, man, I got to go see if this kid's legit. So, um, Jeff and I met at a, I guess at a hotel in Charlotte right before this test deal. And, uh, I really liked them. Like I liked, you know, from talking to all those guys, like I talked about IROC, like thinking, so man, this kid's 17, 18 years old. And he, he really talks about the car like he should be. And then we had uh, we went to Charlotte the next day for a Grand National test, and uh, Davey was there, and, and uh, Chuck Bound, a lot of good, a lot of good guys, and we had a Buck Baker school car, and uh, with a V6 Chevy in it, right? So we didn't have a Buick motor in back then. And Jeff, uh, man, Jeff went out, and I think we put Chuck Bound in it first, shake it down, make sure it was all right. Jeff goes out in it, and I got to tell you the story. I go up on top of the truck, Jeff gets in the car. And he starts waving to me. Come down. I'm like, what? What? And he's he's waving. He didn't want to say it on the radio. So he's waving. He says, "Hey, uh, how do I start this?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he used to get in there and push them off, yeah. right? And I'm like, "Wait, no, wait a minute." He's like, "Yeah, what?" what you know, so went through. I said, "Now you do." I said, "You you do you do drive a you do drive a clutch, right? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's the same as on the column, but on the floor, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, you're good, man. <laughs> well, he went out there, and I'm going to tell you, in uh, three, four laps, he's just sailing. I mean, over the bumps, down into one, just just sailing, like, boom, like right on the board, you know, like probably top five at, at that time. And he comes off of three and four there. He gets a little bit low, maybe gets the apron, gets that bump, and, man, that thing just sideways sideways brings all the way out to the wall almost the wall you know down into the little quad oval there i hit the button on the radio i said hey man you all right he's like yeah why i'm like hey why don't you come in here let's talk i said hey look you know you can't do that that much with a stock car i get it you know your sprint car you can slide i said but you know you you'll turn that thing around he said oh wow i didn't sorry man like i didn't even realize i was that sideways (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome so you know you guys got together and and how does the move to to Hendrick happen? Do you get are you are you a me? How does that happen? How, do you get a phone call? Is Jeff telling you what's going on? Jeff got the phone call. Um, and see, when we went our first win at, at uh, Atlanta, you know, the first few laps on tires, we really lose. And Rick Hendrick was uh, 
watching it. And he sees, you know, he sees this number one baby Ruth car go just smoking the right rear and passes Mark Martin. He's like, man, who's that guy? He's going to wreck. I'm going to watch this. We go on, win the race. And uh, Andy Graves worked at the five car that at that time. And, and uh, Andy said, Rick had said something around the five car. And Andy said, well, that guy lives with me. And, and he doesn't really have a set contract for next year. So they, they called Jeff and they talked to him. And Jeff said, look, you know, Rick Hendrick called me. And I was like, man, that's pretty big right there. You know, like they, those guys have got everything. He said, I want you to go over and look at that place and tell me if you think that, you know, we could win there. And I'm going to tell you, I, I went onto that complex and uh, there used to be a team manager there named, his name was Jimmy Johnson too, yep. Jim Johnson, right? So he showed me around and I looked at everything they had. I went back to Jeff. I said, look, we can't take the stuff that, that man has and win. We can't win anywhere because they have everything they need. I don't know why they're not winning, but I'm telling you, everything we need to, to win races and championships is there. So Jeff accepted that deal with uh, with Rick, and he said, hey, look, I want I want Ray to come, and I want Ray to be my crew chief. And I didn't want to be the crew chief. I was like, I don't have any experience to be a crew chief. I'm the chassis guy. I'll set the chassis up. And Rick, you know, Rick, Rick <laughs> Hendrick is such a funny guy. He said, well, nope. Jeff wants you to be the crew chief, and that's the only job we got. Take it or leave it. You're a crew chief. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah. so, Jeff, at this point, in, in, it just has so much trust in you and y'all's relationship that you're sort of the you're, – you're the guy that's scouting this out. Yeah, he sent me there to uh, – sent me there to, to, to really look. He, you know, Jeff uh, – Jeff stepdad, John Bickford, yep. really – gave Jeff, you know, a lot of confidence and Jeff's got a lot of confidence in John and John always had a lot of confidence in me. And I think that that helped ease Jeff's mind of whether or not we were trying to do the right thing or whatever. And you, you, I don't have to tell you, you, you get with certain people that you're just, you know, you're okay apart, but the two of you are like make a, a whole yeah. better, like stronger than you both could be. And Jeff and I have always been like that. And I mean, we're still like that on the projects that we are today. There's just something that you know, we, we've got the pieces that fit. And uh, when I said, man, we, we can do this, he never questioned it or whatever, you know, and he put himself out there and, and uh, you know, he took a lot of, uh, you know, bad press and, you know, people playing he was leaving Ford and all that. But the, the truth be told, he did not really have a contract for the next year with uh, with Ford. And we actually went and saw some, uh, some Ford teams. And uh, the Ford team said, no, they didn't, that you didn't. One of the Ford teams told them, look, you don't choose your crew chief take you but we're not taking him and i was man i was okay with that because yeah. jeff jeff was the star i'd have just stayed at bills you know um but uh jeff said no no I, i'm you know ray ray ray's with me and now i to this day i believe that's one of the reasons he chose uh to walk away from ford and and to go to hendrick because rick hendrick welcomed me with open arms wow so in the first year all right so you aren't even a crew chief and you get hired to go be the crew chief for Jeff Gordon. Um, and that first year, I kept, I don't know why I retained this stat, and it may be incorrect, but I think Jeff bent 22 clips or something. <laughs> it's about that. Yeah, it was, we killed two or three cars completely. And uh, I, I can't remember, but I think it's about that number front and rear. You know, we, uh, <laughs> We, um, maybe it was ball joints. Was maybe thinking, it wasn't. Man, really maybe, expensive. maybe it wasn't clips. Maybe it was ball joints. But I'm not sure. But I remember, oh no, it was clips. It was snouts <laughs> and rear clips. <laughs> so going yeah. through that first year, you know, we, uh, it, we even today, I think um, whether it in any sport, 
Um, we really want to see that rookie star, you know, produce right away, right? And and in racing, look at like Joe Logano is a great example. Guy come in, everybody put so much heap, so much praise on him, rightly so, very talented. But it took the right combination. It took took a while for things to happen. I feel the same thing has happened with guys like William Byron. Um, I think William is a true talent. It's just going to be a while before he really can produce what he, he's, he's so young. You know, look at the guys that are winning in a series now in their 30s and 40s. So when you're, when you're going through that experience with Jeff, you obviously know what Jeff can do, but maybe you're only one of the few people in the building. And yes, there's good runs and success, and you're seeing the glimpse of the future, but with the, with the um, was there any a point, I guess, in the season when anyone was sort of like going, man, is he going to? Is he going to get this thing where he can, you know, keep the wheels on it? I think, you know, it's a little bit of a different world um, back then. So in some ways, we probably had it a little bit easier on us than maybe William Byron or or some of these, you know, um, younger guys have now because the expectation was a little bit different. A lot of guys, like you said, oh, the guys winning now in their 30s and 40s. Well, back then, the guys that were winning were in their 40s and 50s and everybody kind of knew you had to build up that 20-year notebook before you could be a a top driver and I think that people could see the talent that he had uh, and knew that sooner or later he was going to get a notebook on the tracks and he was going to figure this out and and more importantly I was going to figure it out because you had a rookie driver but you also had a really rookie crew chief right you know I had only been working on a car with fenders for a little while and uh, I, I, I felt personally like our everything worked out good in the end because I think us both starting so young when we learned together. But had Jeff had a more experienced crew chief, he might have won earlier in oh, his come first on. year. You know, even though we did, we even though we did win the first race for Rick, uh, I think our first race at Daytona. But uh, you know, I, there were some mistakes I made as well building what, like the cars what? and like what calls. what kind of mistakes? Uh, I think that I I wasn't. Um, sharp enough with aerodynamics at, at first it took me really a, a year or so to understand how that really how much effect that that really had i think some of my race strategy stuff um uh i had to learn you because you know you know back then without all the computers and out all the this and simulation and that you know you had a notebook and it was like playing a multi-level chess game you know you're playing over here and there were times i got playing these two guys and Darn if we didn't get beat by this guy over here because he had a different strategy. So I think that all of us growing together and about the time we hit our stride, you know, we, we won the Coke 600. We won that on a two tire deal. And that was great in 94, you know? Um, but then we went to Indy when the, in the Brickyard 494, the playing field was pretty level because nobody had a notebook and we went there and won that. And then we we're okay. Okay. We can run with these guys. And, and uh, that built the, it built a lot of confidence, but I, I do feel like, um, you know, Jeff had, had Jeff had a more experienced crew chief, he might've won earlier, but I'm not sure he would have won as much as we did later. Right. You built a car that's iconic. And a lot of people, uh, think this car is maybe one of the best race cars ever built T-Rex. All right. I tried to get Gary Nelson to come on the show because Gary to me, uh, was just a really incredible crew chief, but also, uh, a lot of ingenuity, creativity is what I like to call it. Working in the holes of the rule book and so forth. And I'm sure that, you know, I've learned in my career how Tony Sr. and Tony Jr. and Steve Letard and all those guys also found those 
those pockets to work in. Um, what what is your experience with that? I mean, is there is there anything about the T Rex car that you can tell us that was a you know some creative genius uh, that set that car apart from everybody else? Or is there anything else, even maybe not related to that car, that you and your guys understood or discovered first, whether it's bump stops, coil bound, or anything like that? Well, you know, I can talk about anything you want because a, a we're a we're buds, and and b there's like a statue of limitations, so I don't think they can <laughs> find me or. I hope they can't kick me back out of the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's what, you know be, um, I can tell you that that the things that we worked on, Dale, were just what I thought basic stuff. I did bring some short track stuff, but, you know, that whole light, low, left, right? Yeah. And, you know, and unsprung weight and then understanding, combining that with aerodynamics and rotating, ro- actually rotating mass. We worked on lightening up our driveline components. We worked on really hard on shock absorbers. Again, one through my years at Penske, I helped develop the Penske shock absorber with Jeff Ryan. Yeah. And so I knew about all the stuff that was going on with shocks. We also did a large part of the radial tire development with Goodyear. So I had a good handle on, on what to do with that. And I looked at these cup cars and man, they were built like indestructible, you know, or indestructible. You, you just bash her in the wall and back her up and go. And where we started to build things a little bit lighter and, and paying attention to, uh, to unsprung weight, to shock absorbers, to, to rotating mass, and and then taking advantage of a lot of, of aerodynamic stuff. Now, sometimes I took advantage of some things that were a little bit outside, like the, the hub at, at Charlotte that night was not titanium. It was not a titanium hub, but it was <laughs> lightened up. It was lightened up a little bit uh, too much, and that that uh, that cost me a good bit of money. And, uh, you know, we, we used to do some things. We'd get fined and tapped here and there, but show up with aluminum dry shaft and hollow axles and you know, all, all kind of stuff like that, you know, lightening up the gears. And, but, you know, the T-Rex thing, I'm going to tell you, I've always told everybody, the credit for that car goes to Rick Hendrick. Rick Hendrick got us all together. Got You know, how he used to have them meetings. You've been to them. Oh, yeah. You know, where Rick, every, every, get, a, get a turkey sandwich because Rick's coming, right? So we, we all sat around the table. He said, look, he said, we can't keep racing the way we're racing. We want to get ahead. I want you guys to put all your ideas on paper and get with Rex Stump. Uh, who was our lead engineer at that time, brilliant guy, and Gary Aker, another guy, you know, right down here at Aerodyne, brilliant guy, give them the ideas, and we're going to build our own version of the car. I want to build the Hendrick car, stage two, three, whatever. So everybody had a bunch of ideas, and, man, we raised the floor pan and dropped the frame rails, and, you know, to, to get underbody aerodynamics, we made the chassis stiffer. We moved the shocks outside the the frame rails, and, you know, it was, it was a cool car, low center of gravity and all these things. Took it to the racetrack, could not get it to work. Would not work. It just would not work. We it, it was just just wouldn't run. So everybody took it. Five car took it. We took it. Schrader and them guys took it with the 25 car. And one day we had it with us over at Charlotte. And uh, you know, Charlotte, three o'clock in the afternoon, you might as well run your rent-a-car around there because the track's so <laughs> slick and I mean, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna learn anything. Yeah. So I said, hey, look, while we're here, let's we had Blacker, one of our good cars. I said, let's let's see where we're at. Let, let, let's let's play with T-Rex while we're here. So uh, it wasn't T-Rex then. It didn't, didn't, it didn't become T-Rex. I forget what we called it. Probably not a, not a name we can even say on the radio because they'd <laughs> spent a bunch of money and time. It just wouldn't work. So the uh, we go out there and, and, you know, Jeff makes a few laps. And it's about, man, it's about a half a second off of uh, off of Blacker, right? And uh, he comes in. He said, man, I, I just don't know. He said, you know, I feel there's something there, but it just, man, it just ain't whatever. 
So I said, all right, I said, let's try this. Let's try something crazy. I, no kidding. I said, I want you to, I said, because I, I guess at that time we used to run like a 1200 on the left front and 19 on the right front and, yeah. you know, like a 400 and a 350, you know, in the back. And I said, just uh, put a, put a pair of 1400s in that thing. Give me the biggest sway bar we got, which old inch and three eighths. They're like, oh my God, what did I don't even know. I didn't know we carried anything that big on the truck <laughs> at that time, right? I said, and uh, jam a pair of 450s in the back of that thing. So, you know, everybody's looking at me like, don't be crazy. You know, don't get, don't get him hurt. He's going to hit the wall with that set up, right? So I told him, be careful for a lap or two because I have no idea what this thing's going to do. Well, he goes out there. I'm standing on top of the truck with Brian Whitesell, and he picks up speed. And he goes by, you know, he's going by. And I click my stopwatch, and I'm like, ah, same time. Well, Brian Whitesell, he's like jumping up and down. And he's tapping me, tapping me, tapping me. And I'm like, what, what? And he shows me the stopwatch again. What I didn't realize it was a second faster. Yeah. Now it's five tenths of a second faster than, than uh, Blacker. Jeff comes in, man. He, he pops the window net down. He said, what was that? And I was like, I have no idea. Let, let's just think about this. And what we know now is, uh, you know, drop the front, got that underbody aerodynamic deal to work. And, uh, you know, we, uh, I said, let's bring it back to the Winston. And we bring it back to the Winston. And that's when you guys could come down pit road at a thousand miles an hour. Remember that? Yeah. You know, <laughs> well, he goes by, he goes to hit the brake and he goes by our, our pit stall, all four wheels locked up. And, it, he, you know, he, he like still going 80 miles an hour. And he's yelling at me on the radio. The brakes ain't working. The brakes ain't working. I said, well, the wheels were locked up when you went by. So, you know, maybe you were going too fast. We started last, I think, that night in the Winston and came through. We did not win all three segments like like everybody thinks. Right. That, that, that was kind of an urban legend. We did win all three segments in 95, but uh, with, with the, uh, with the uh, T-Rex car, we didn't. And um, they called it T-Rex because it had that dinosaur on the hood yes. for Jurassic Park. But um, what Didn't NASCAR tell you to not bring a car back? You race. Oh car. yeah. Well, yeah. They, they worked with us. They saw the car. They knew the, the car. So we win the Winston. We're up there. You know, I used to go up to Union Cal 76 deal and have your toast and your champagne. And yeah. you know, we're up there in the Speedway club, hobnobbing and doing all that stuff, you know, grabbing what's left over of the, of the filet mignons and stuff like that and come down. And uh, when we get down there, car's going through inspection and they said, Mr. France wants to see you. So, these to, he, Bill used to sit up in the truck there, and I, I love Bill. Like, I, I miss – what I miss most about the sport is my conversations with Bill France. And uh, I thought Bill's just going to offer me a beer and we're going to sit and talk about the race and stuff like that, right? So I go in the, go in the hauler, and uh, there used to be a beige-colored push-button phone sitting right there. They'd plug in wherever they went. We didn't even have cell phones and all that stuff all over the place. No satellites or none of that. So I go in there and – I said, hey, Bill, how you doing? He looks at me, he said, and this when he used to smoke. He said, uh, you need to pick up that phone right there and call your boss and tell him that car's illegal. And I was like, what? No, 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 it, no, it, it, it's past inspection. It, it's, it's good. It, it fits all of the rules and it's legal. And he looks at me and he goes, it won't be tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> just like that. He said, he said, you just can't, can't, can't run it anymore. Don't bring it back. We're going to change all the rules on the frame rails. And, and they rewrote um, a ton of rules. And we tried to fix the car to new rules, but it never really ran the same. And by that time, everybody kind of caught up to us anyway. But the, the car still is over at the Hendrick Museum there, yep. if you want to see it. So 
I don't know if you can put this into words. Be um, why do you leave HMS? Everything's going good. Winning championships, winning a lot of races. What made you strike out to go do your own deal? I mean, I know it was Dodge. I know there was a lot of opportunity and and probably a lucrative situation. Um, you had been scared, and and you had something comfortable, right? You were you were dominating. Yeah, you know those those decisions. You know, when you look in life, sometimes they're hard, right? But I trust my gut a lot. You know, people go, "Oh, man, race to organize. He's got a plan. He does this." Well, sometimes I got to tell you the truth. You know, I said, "Well, let the story slip out." Sometimes I just jump and uh, and figure the plan on the way down. You know what I mean? Hope you don't go down too far. You just got to trust your gut that it's time. I've, I've sometimes had a good sense of timing when it was ready to to change and. You know, at that time, I had the best job in motorsports, could have gone and done anything I wanted to do in Hendrick. But ultimately, it still was Hendrick Motorsports. Um, Jeff was growing and changing. You know, when I met Jeff, he was 18, you know. Um, and now, he, you know, he's been through a lot. He was already time champion. He had lots of stuff going on, pulling in different directions. And I, I didn't feel like he needed a crew chief like I was. And, and I honestly looked at the sport and I started to look at that, that black box, this little thing we're talking to right now and think, I'm not going to be able to beat that computer day. I've got to really start to think about where, where Ray Everham's going next, because at, at that time, uh, I guess that would have been 90, 99. So you know, Jeff was just a, a early thirties. I'm almost, uh, almost 50 by that time. Right. So, uh, this opportunity comes up, see if I could really do it. You know, if I could really put a deal together, like I watched Roger do, like I watched Rick Hendrick do, and and boy, I didn't have I didn't have my failsafe Jeff Gordon. I didn't have my 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 parachute, knowing that if I brought a fifth place car, we could probably still win with it. Uh, and, and all those things, I think. And at that time, Jeff was was things on his own too. And the opportunity to build something from scratch, design a car, learn a lot more, be around people that I hadn't been around. It, it, it was really intriguing to me. And the hardest thing I ever had to do was go to Rick Hendrick's house and have that conversation with him. And uh, as I said, you know, the, you will never find a more class person than Rick Hendrick because instead of blowing up and yelling and screaming and making it really hard on me, he, uh, he extended his hand. He didn't want to see me go, but he also helped me achieve, things I needed to achieve to do that. So I think it was really good for uh, myself, for, for Rick, for Jeff, because it allowed all of us to grow. And the, the cool part is we, the three of us still remain as close today as, uh, you know, you know, Rick called me back a little while ago. And if he called me tomorrow and said, Hey, I need you to come over here. Uh, I, I'd be there. So he didn't try to keep you. Um, he, I asked them, you know, to, let me do this. And you know what? It was really funny. Both of them were very respectful, but neither one of them wanted me to go. Um, and, uh, but I think Rick, I think deep down inside when you, everybody knew it was time, yeah. you, you know what I mean? It was really an ideal, but everybody kind of knew it was time because the sport was changing and Jeff was changing, Hendrick Rowan. And it was, it, it was, it was just time. Like we didn't really, we didn't really, you know, we didn't really want to break up, but we, but, but we all knew that it, it, it was it was time. You you know you start this brand new race team with Dodge. Um, from all 
from my vantage point or, or uh, from what from how I saw it, it seemed like everything was there uh, right out of the gate. Pretty impressive operation, just sprung right out of nothing. Um, you tapped a couple drivers, uh, um, Casey Atwood, Jeremy Mayfield. Um, you had a lot of success. Bill Elliott, you win at Indy. You had all kinds of great things happening. What was that experience like? How come Ray Evernham is not an owner today? What what was I know you had fun. I know you had great moments and enjoyed it. But what happened? Why why did it not sustain? You wouldn't come drive for me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, just kidding. I would love to have you drive for me. Uh, you know, the um I think that we really worked hard and built a good program. And there's lots of reasons it succeeded in in some of the things that it did. And one of those uh was my good friend Bill Elliott. I will tell you that out of all the guys I've worked with, um, I don't know that I've ever worked with a finer test driver um, than Bill Elliott. I mean, he is amazing, amazing guy. I know you've worked with him a little bit with, with Chase and stuff like that. Um, and, and we were really doing well uh, technology-wise. And I think what happened was I pushed so far ahead that we got a little bit ahead of where the sport was and then we you know that started to hurt our performance a little bit and when that did there were some changes at dodge and there were um again a lot of things going on in my life uh that all of a sudden i wasn't having a good time and i realized that um i did that no, no different than doing the, the you know the irop deal and then the 24 car and this on thought okay i did this and we've accomplished a lot um, my only regret is I wasn't able to win a championship. Yeah. We won we won a decent amount of races. We won we won I think 15 or 16 cup races, five or six or uh, push races, and we won some marker races. And you know, uh, but in the end, I I, w- I didn't feel fulfilled, and I wasn't uh, wasn't happy. Um, I love working on the cars. I love designing cars. I love building cars, and it, I felt like all I was doing was jumping from golf to golf, golf cart to golf cart, changing shirts running the meetings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's and, a great um, way of putting it. I, I couldn't even spend time in my own fab shop, you know, and I just realized, okay, what, what, what am I doing here? And I, I think at that time I really started to feel like a little bit of a sellout. Like I, man, I'd sold my, I'd, I'd sold myself out and, and, uh, and lucky for me, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a guy came along and made me an offer. And I got to tell you this too, went back to my old friend, Rick Hendrick. And I said, Rick, I just don't know if I if, if I'm ready to get out. What should I do? And uh, of course, Rick had the turkey sandwiches laid out on the on the table there. We were down on Monroe Road, and he looked at me. He looked at the deal, and he said, "Raymond, if you don't do this deal, you're an idiot." He said, "Because <laughs> you know what? In six months, the whole climate could be changed, and the economy could fall down." And and uh, and I said, "Okay," and and I did it. And man, he was he, he was like Nostradamus because if you remember, right after I sold it, the economy came down and whatnot and uh i was lucky enough that uh, the folks at espn gave me a job yeah you know today uh a lot's happened since then since you were a cup series owner um today you're yeah what are you what, what give me give me um job description for ray everham uh today oh man I, you know there used to be a really cool uh chevrolet truck commercial where they'd say they said to the guy what are you doing he went Hmm. Yeah, huh. it's hard to to uh, to say 
man, I, you know, I, I, I'm a picker like you, right. You know, I'm, I'm a, I enjoy finding the old cars and finding the old stories. And, and Hey, you know, just a plug to you guys all the way, you know, the, the new show is, is, is fantastic. Fantastic. You know, uh, Bill flew me over middle, middle Georgia one time with a helicopter yeah. to show me the track and where the still and everything was really cool deal. Um, but, uh, you know, like you, I, I think the only way I can give back to the sport now is, is help preserve and protect and history you know, our, our DNA, if you will, that's why I'm such a, I'm so proud to be part of the NASCAR hall of fame, to be able to share in that, you know? Um, so right now we at Ray Everham enterprises, we restore vintage race cars. Um, we did a little bit of TV production, uh, with our show, uh, glory road and then Americana. Um, and I try and spend more time with my family. I'm working on a, a better balance with that, you know, and, and again, I see you doing that. And I'm so proud of what you do, you know, what you're doing. So I guess right now I'm trying to copy Dale Earnhardt Jr. That's what, <laughs> okay. that's what I'm doing. Um, and of course, you know, we, we, uh, we just announced the other day about SRX. So, which is to me, I'm going full circle, you know, to me, I'm, I'm like, I'm like going home, you know, where, where it's not IROC, but it's a lot based on IROC and I can still have involvement with all of the people uh, with, with NASCAR, with IndyCar, with whatever, and all of all of my car people, and and still do something that I love, you know, build and design cars and go to racetrack once in a while. So you mentioned it, the SRX series, uh, big announcement. Uh, you guys are uh, you, Tony Stewart. Who else is involved? Uh, George Pine, who, who uh, right now has his own uh, company, Bruin Sports Capital, uh, and was formerly at IMG, was at NASCAR many years ago. And Sandy Montag of the Montag Group, who is a television um, uh, agency in New York City. And CBS, CBS uh, uh, and Sean McManus are actually partner in this. So be- between the five of us, I think it's a really good team. You, you know, something's good's got to happen. Whenever, when, when all the team members are so different, everybody's got an expertise in a certain area. And, and that's the kind of team that we're, we're at right now. So putting this together uh, with some input from the fans – and you know, making it—it's—it's it's going to be a true competition between some of the motorsports superstars, whatnot. But it, you know, it is a made-for-TV motorsports entertainment show uh, for the fans. So, what can you learn from iRock? Oh man, you know the the, the things that that uh, what, what's going to be a little bit different. Preparing the cars identically at iRock, I think we did a great job for what we had to do in the '80s and '90s. But you know. We didn't know as much about tires and about carburetors and about aerodynamics and things like that, uh, how different that stuff would be or how much of a different, a little bit of driving style could make. So with these cars, we're going to keep very short tracks, um, kind of half mile pave, half mile dirt tracks, um, maybe a little custom kind of road course deal. So the aerodynamics won't be a factor. Um, and we're, you know, now with the new electronic fuel injection, and understanding where we're at with tires and whatnot, we can make the cars much more identical. As I said, not going to rely on a bunch of a bunch of error. We're going to have a very responsive engine, so we can create passing and whatnot. But then, more importantly, and you 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 um, ran the IROC series. You come in, you draw for your race car, and you don't get into race day. Here, you'll draw for your race car, uh, and then you'll also draw for a legendary crew chief, right? Mm-hmm. And you and your crew chief will have about a twenty minute practice to go out and say, "Okay, look, I'm going to okay, yeah, I can make." A- we're going to give you a toolbox of 
adjustments, whether that's a little shock or a little bar, a little bit of spring change, or you can put a little wedge in, or you can do this. Here's your window of adjustments. You get a quick practice in your own car, and then you get ready for the race. Are these just only retired legends? Are there going to be current drivers uh, in any of these races? Uh, we are very uh, aware. You know, Again, we're looking at superstars, and right now there are many, many guys who don't run a full schedule. Um, and girls and whoever, you know, we're going to be, uh, you know, very diverse. But um, it wasn't like when the original IROC came, everybody's running enough, they could run up until their 50. Well, there's tons of guys like you that are very young, uh, and uh, and you can take that like you however you want as an invitation. <laughs> uh, th that still want to do it, but they don't want to run 200 miles an hour. Um, they don't want to run, you know, 30, 40 times a year. And, and we are going to talk to a lot of those drivers. We are very um, aware of the conflicts that that IROC had have trying to use current drivers. So we're, we're really actively going to stay away from drivers who are full-time in NASCAR and, you know, IndyCar and IMSA, you know, uh, but the guys that are, that are either part-time or recently retired or, you know, former legends are the people that we're going to look at. We're also going to be very aware of, you know, again, this SRX is something that, we want to complement auto racing, not take away from compete with NASCAR, or IndyCar, sure. any of that. We're going to be very aware of the scheduling. On our, our show will be on Saturday nights, uh, 2021 summer, July, August, and we're going to be very aware of the scheduling, the other race series, so that we don't have conflicts. We don't have driver conflicts, and we don't want to have scheduling conflicts. We really want SRX to get more eyes on motorsports as a whole for everybody. I couldn't sit here and not ask you when you're talking about the SRX series and you're talking about running it like little half miles and, 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 and having less mechanical and aero grip and maybe more throttle, uh, giving it back to the drivers. You know, all the talk about it, there's been a lot of talk in the short track community about where SRX, what X, SRX will be. You know, you're talking about legendary drivers and crew chiefs. Does that model maybe include some short trackers? You know, the Doug Kobe's, the Bubba Pollard's, you know, not to get specific on names, but those type drivers, where do you see that in the model? Absolutely, it does. And what's really cool and exciting about this is, you know, we're looking at about 12 cars, right? But now that may be just 10 full-time drivers. And then oh. the other two cars may be made up of teams of drivers. We've got guys from some extreme motorsports and global rally cross that can't make all the races but they want to swap out and run a couple. And then we want to maybe give a Rocky Balboa shot to a guy like uh, Doug Kobe or, or, you, you know, the late model guys, or maybe Josh a sprint Perry, car guy, yeah. you know, David Gravel or Donnie Schatz yeah. or whatever. So absolutely you will see some surprise guest drivers. And there may be some celebrities. We've had some celebrities call us up and say, Hey man, I want to, I want to get in this show now. And some of them can wheel. And some of them may just be uh, the caution we need. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget the underdog. If you got an underdog, yes. I'll be tuning in every time. That'll be pretty All right. Team is. Yeah. <laughs> hey, send, send me some names. All right, buddy. <laughs> All right. So a couple quick questions as far as your, your picking uh, and collecting. Uh, what was the, what's the last thing you found? And the last thing I found, uh, well, I actually, I found a group of cars, and one in that group was a car that we called Booker. It was, uh, we ran it at Daytona in 1994, finished fourth in the 500, eighth in the 400, wrecked it twice at Talladega, go figure. I, I think 
I think the only time we didn't wreck at Talladega, we, we won. Um, but it uh, it's a really awesome piece because other than pulling the motor out, I remember getting that car ready and, and selling it. A lot of the bumper to bumper on that race car is just the way we ran it. And it's kind of funny because you talk about, about those gray areas. And I looked at that and thought to myself, some of the gray areas I looked at that car, I would get put right in, in NASCAR jail right now. I would get you know, <laughs> like, I look at the spoiler on it. If I showed up, I'd be in handcuffs and they'd leave me right out of Where'd there. Where'd you, you find know? it? Uh, it was in a Gilmore Museum in Michigan with a group of other cars. And a guy called me up and he said, hey, do you know anybody that wants this? And I was like, well, what is it? Where? What? And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I know. I know a guy. What else have you got? You know? So this guy bought, the, he bought some old sprint cars from them. And uh, there's a Gary St. Amant car that you probably can't see. It's on the other side of us. But it's one of his championship uh, cars as as well. So we're, uh, you know, Matt saw it the other day there. There's stuff out there. You and I still got a project, and you know, can we plug? Tell, hey, anybody wants to help us get get our Bobby Allison car ready? We've been gathering parts and pieces, but we, you know, we've we've got a pretty cool Bobby Allison car. We do. Now, that's what's neat, you know. That there's you find a thing, and there's just so many, so many stories. Yeah, I think the Bobby Allison car is right over your left shoulder. It's um, on the yeah. second floor. That car ran second to Daytona 500 and won the Firecracker 400 in 1980. But um. Wherever wherever he ran it last, he got he got her Atlanta, Atlanta or something. He got her up against because she still got a scuffed up right rear quarter panel. Yeah, on. he fenced it at Atlanta. Is there a car out there that you maybe want to have? Is there something out there in your that's not in your collection you'd love to find? Uh, you know, I used to say all the time it was the American Graffiti car, the '58 Chevy from American Graffiti, and I finally got that. I'm so proud to have it. But if if you said, man, what what is the one thing I would love to find? You know, like, and I don't even know if they exist, but if, if you could find a car that Dan Gurney drove for the Wood Brothers, me, that would be, that would be really cool stock car to have. Uh, you know, one of the old, um, the Holman and Moody 121s and yeah. you know, they, they, they are around. I know that there's people who built some replicas, but to me, you know, uh, I, I've really been blessed to work with some great drivers, you know, and, and learn so much from them. Dan Gurney uh, to me was um, was like the ultimate guy, car builder, driver, and uh, was fortunate to get to know him before he passed away. But to have, I've got one of his Indy cars, and, and a matter of fact, Dale, you sat in it. I got a picture of you. And, and, uh, Dan uh, and the car, Dan won his last Indy car race in that, and I've got a picture of you sitting in it. But to have a, a stock car that he drove, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. What's the end game for you on this? Uh, I. The end game for me, man, I, I just, I think that if, uh, with this SRX series, if the fans say that was a good show and the drivers get out of the car and say, good job, those cars, those cars were good and we put on a good show and it really does add to all of motorsports, I think that would be it. You know, I, I really feel like my big break came, you know, my, my, my chance in life, my chance of professional career came because of uh because of IROC. so now to be to be able to to reboot start a series that's a lot like that and uh maybe be able to work with a group of young guys like jay signori did with us and and teach some of these young guys and and get maybe the next who knows ray everham or whoever involved in in the sport uh that that that'd be good for me but uh I, I just uh, I don't know. I always tell everybody I think I got one more good one left in me, but uh, 
I'm gonna, I, I want to be like Roger Penske. Man, Roger Penske's 82, 83 years old, and he is at Indianapolis Motor Speedway and runs around the world all the time. So I, I want to be, I want to be like Roger. So I got, I got 20 years to go yet. Yeah, I think you can do it, buddy. Well, man, I appreciate <laughs> you coming on the show. You're an amazing guy, and I'm so thankful to have gotten to know you and become such good friends. It's really meant a lot to me personally. Um, but again, thanks for coming on the show. Fans are going to love hearing from you. And I uh, hope you have a good week, pal, until I see you again. All right. And I, again, I, I appreciate being on and great, great job. Keep, keep digging the history, buddy. Yes, sir. Same to you. Picture this. It's blazing hot outside and you need to head to work. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get the cold air pumping as soon as possible, but it doesn't work. Instead, blowing hot air out of your vents and directly into your face. No, your car doesn't hate you. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the air conditioning system, and there's an easy all-in-one solution that will restore your cold air in no time. There's no need to go to the shop and pay lots of money when you can save time and money recharging yourself with AC Pro Recharge Kits. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes. So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro. We're live, Ask Junior on YouTube. All right, everybody. Hey, it's Dale Junior for the Dale Junior Download. It's time for the Ask Junior segment of the show. Mike Davis is on vacation this week, so I'm here with just uh, Matthew and, and Lee is with us as well. Uh, this is brought to you by Xfinity. Uh, they're a proud premier partner of the Dale Junior Download and NASCAR. You guys sent your questions in to at Xfinity Racing on Twitter. Uh, and I'm sure a few to Dirty Mo Media. Leah, what do we got yes. today? First question is from Eric Gunning. Um, he wants to know what driver on the outside looking in do you think has the best shot uh, to sneak into the chase? My goodness. Um, <laughs> Look into your crystal ball. Yeah, so <laughs> the chase, that's a dollar in a jar. Oh, whoops. I did oh. it too. <laughs> Oh, she got the dog. Dang it, Eric. Eric tricked me. Yep, he did. Uh, the driver that I think is the best opportunity to make it to the playoffs is um, – are we going Xfinity or Cup? Yeah, let's, let's go Cup. Cup. Okay. I, well, let's go both. Let's go both because oh. I got the Xfinity stuff. So, uh, Ryan Sieg is in on 11th. Um, he's got a crew chief that he's had for years. Last year he had a different crew chief um, that I thought the performance was a little bit better, but – um, I think when it, so between Ryan Sieg, Brandon Brown, Jeremy Clements, uh, Myatt Snyder, I think is going to have a hard time getting back into that conversation. He's now 38 points out. I think you got to look at those guys, their crew chiefs, look at the crew chiefs of those three drivers, Sieg, Brown, Clements, and look at the experience there. I think that's really going to play a role in these final few races as we get down closer to the uh, playoffs for the Xfinity series. I think Brandon Brown makes it. And uh, really, yeah, I think Jeremy comes close, but maybe not, maybe not getting himself in. And I think Sieg hangs on. He's got 57 points on the bubble. Um, Brandon Brown, man, it's it's a cool story. But Clements has been running great here lately. Third place at Pocono, a couple uh, top 15 finishes sprinkled throughout. Um, on the Cup side, 
Oh, man. Eric Jones. You know, Eric is in a very difficult situation, but he made a lot of hay this weekend, gained a lot of ground on the guys at the bubble. I mean, it's a huge disappointment if he misses the playoffs, I would have to say. I'm assuming that's how he – I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't say it wouldn't be, right? Couldn't argue that. Somebody's going to be super disappointed. Uh, William Byron, Jimmy Johnson. How bad is it going to be if Jimmy misses it? He missed it last year, first time in his career. Uh, he had to miss a race because of the COVID positive test. Um, now he's only like you know two points to the good. He's gonna have to drive hard. They got the speed though. William Byron, his teammate, I don't think has as much speed as I've seen out of Jimmy. What's gonna happen? Um, Eric Jones is trying to get his way in there. The only problem is, is that Cole Custer and Austin Dillon have snuck in there and won races and locked themselves <laughs> in. Two guys that I think that Eric, William, and Jimmy could beat. Now are locked in, taking spots. Uh, so that means some of the players that maybe would have been considered favorites to get into playoffs will miss. Uh, you also have Tyler Reddick sitting there knocking on the door, being a little antagonist, uh, trying to steal a spot as well. So, And who knows? You could have another surprise winner outside that top 19. You never know. It happened this weekend. We had a little surprise with Austin Dillon. I didn't answer the question um, – you know, I think Jimmy makes it. I I feel confident that Eric can make it. I really do. I think William might have. I think Williams might be the guy that gets beat out. So there you go. I think Clint's in there. You know, the great thing about a team that Clint drives for, like Stuart Haas, even eh, Hendrick Motorsports to a degree, I, the Chevrolets worry me a little bit. Think great thing about Boyer is that he he really has some speed out of his teammates, the ten, the four. Man, they can really lean on that. Company can start moving resources toward Clint to ensure he gets some better performance. I've seen that happen in Hendrick Motorsports, and it's effective. So that gives me some confidence on Clint. Next question. Next question is coming all the way from Indonesia. Somebody in our YouTube live chat. Phonics RMF. Greetings from Indonesia. What international racetracks would you like to drive on? Brands Hatch. Brands Hatch Indy, the smaller course. So I've I've ran on the uh, so I've only ran on Brands Hatch in simulation, right? There was an old uh, British Touring Car Championship game, Toka Two, uh, and I loved racing on the indie small short course of Brands Hatch. Pretty simple, small racetrack. A lot of beating and banging in that series back then. They still get pretty aggressive. I love the British Touring Car Championship. Um, Jason Plato and guys like that. Matt Neal, that was another one. He used to be an independent that I pull for. I love the underdogs. So I fell in love with that racetrack, and I race it even the longer course on iRacing quite a bit. The Skip Barber car is a blast around around Brands Hatch. So I'd love to go there and, and check that place out. There's, I mean, all the tracks over there. There's If you're a race fan of any kind, you want to check out what's going on in different parts of the world. So... Um, Brands Hatch, I guess, is the one that pops up in my mind first. Next question coming from NASCAR's biggest fan. Um, what do you think about the comments Brad Kozlowski made a few days ago about demoting struggling drivers? I think that there could be a a, a better, maybe not demotion in, in a sense. Uh, I think there could be a, a better ladder system. You know, we used to have... Uh, you know, you used to have things that guys had to do to be able to get uh, to a certain place. 
Well, you know, they wouldn't be cleared to run at Daytona unless they had done X, Y, and Z and things like that. Uh, and that seemed to work pretty good. We stripped away and added things. Remember when Kyle Busch was trying to race in the truck series, he was too young, right? Yeah, he's, hey, Matt, remember? Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, there was some limitations, and they sucked at times, yeah. right? Cause yeah, because you, you wanted to see him yeah, in there. you knew Kyle was great and uh, fast, and you was like, hey, man, guy, he's got to wait. Um you know, now you got kids they're 13 years old racing late models and things like Where that. Where do you draw on? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I got you. You got to make the kid race late models for, you know, ever. Uh, <laughs> I don't know uh, what the answer is, uh, but I definitely think that uh, for the for the Cup Series that there should be some there should be some things that you should accomplish or need to accomplish before you can go compete there. Yes. Um I really do. So, it's elite. Yeah, I'm, I do. I feel like that. You know, I, I'm not going to draw comparisons with other other sports. There's the there's the uh, you know the urgency to or the you know you, the habit to say well in this sport what does that happen? You know, take any you know. I think just uh, I feel bad for the guy uh, in that double zero Quinn. Uh, that was a bad move. I haven't even heard what his side of it is, um, but you know you can't have you can't have that mis- that type of mistake happen. The guys are going to make mistakes and drive the car into the corner and get loose and things like that, but you can't have a guy not really knowing how to exit the racetrack uh, to pit and cleaning people out. But um, this reminds me of an incident I think going back to New Hampshire many years ago where Morgan Shepard. Uh, got into Joey Logano. Yes. I think Joey was leading yes. the race, and Morgan got into him. Morgan was racing in the Cup Series, uh, a one-off deal, and uh, he was quite a bit off pace in his mid seventies at the time. Maybe I don't remember how old he was. Yep. But it was a he was he was up there, and I, you know, honestly, I, I love Morgan, and and don't want to discredit his impact on the sport or anything. But man, it probably wasn't necessary that he be out there, yep. and he ended up creating a problem for someone that was trying to win the race or running up front, uh, leading the race. And we can avoid that. I think this is a, this this falls right into that bucket for me. Yeah. Maybe some accomplishments or something be 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 uh put into place for a driver that, you know, have to do X, Y, and Z a little bit more uh to get into that to get into that cup car. Next question coming from Jessica Watkins. Um, we talked about it a lot last week before the All-Star Race, but she wants to know, what was your final thoughts on the underglow lights? All right. Um, I thought the underglow lights were awesome at the uh, burnout burnout on the boulevard in Nashville. I was there. Uh, I didn't know. All right, so I'm at the burnout on the boulevard. Everybody else is there. It's dark and cool. It's a great scene uh, in Nashville. No, I didn't know that they were going to have a couple cars with the glow. But here comes the Ganassi cars, and they were glowing, and it looked awesome, right? Kurt Busch's uh, Monster Energy car had that green Monster Energy color glow coming out that, that was pouring out of everywhere, right? From from the bumper to from front to back bumper, right? Just cool. In the smoke, it was hitting the smoke. As the car's doing the burnout, it was perfect. In my opinion, that's kind of where it belongs. I really do. I really feel like um, that that's the place for that. The glow, in the, in those moments when you know we have a burnout on the boulevard, or or if cars are driving through, uh, through town or whatever for whatever reason that might be happening. I used to do that in Vegas, drive around town a little bit. The uh, 
I don't like the fact that the colors were designated to the manufacturer. You know, if you want brand identity, make the cars recognizable. They're 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 getting better. They're getting closer to having some brand identity. I can look and more quickly understand which one's a Ford and which one's a Chevy and so forth than I could many uh, a few years ago, five or ten years ago. So that's gotten better. If you're going to put glow under the car, I want to be able to match that glow to the paint scheme, make that, glow, make that look really good. And it needs to be from nose to tail. I'm, I'm wondering, I'm suspicious if the glow was going to pull too many amps and the teams said, hey, I can only allow... I, it's, maybe the team said to NASCAR, look, I don't want to, I'm not taking amps away from something that's performance driven and giving it to this glow, right? So NASCAR said, well, give us three amps or whatever, right? And maybe three amps only drove enough glow for the back. Just guessing. But anyhow, it was, it, if, if you can't do it right, don't do it. And I don't feel like that um, glowing just one part of the car is the way to go and definitely having. You know, all the Chevys one color and all the Fords another color really just, it didn't match up, didn't look good. Track was, is concrete, so that glow on that concrete looked funky. I think on a, on a, on pavement it would look better. Um, but anyways, you know, they might bring it back. I'm not going to complain if they do. I really thought the number placement was pretty cool. That looked better, uh, even better than I could have ever imagined. And, yeah. um, but as long as it stays in between the tires, we've talked about that. Next question. That's it for today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> We talk a lot about champions on the track, but man, let's talk about community champions. Yeah, we're talking about folks who win at helping each other, helping others all year long, and our partner Xfinity is saluting them with the Comcast Community Champion of the Year program, oh, yeah. Dale. I've heard about this. Yeah. If there's someone you know in the NASCAR industry giving back to their community, all right, Swing by ComcastCommunityChampion.com. All right, go to ComcastCommunityChampion.com to nominate that person and learn more about the program. Head on over now and nominate today. Three finalists will be selected for donations from Conquest for their charities. And don't forget to let Dale hear from you, too. Send your questions in to at Xfinity Racing on Twitter. Use that hashtag AskJunior for a chance to have your questions answered by our future Hall of Famer. Xfinity has donated $600,000 over the wow. years to highlight giving back uh, to our great sports. So this is an opportunity to help someone get acknowledged. Go nominate them now at ComcastCommunityChampion.com. Thank you, Xfinity. Okay, uh, odd history. So at Bristol last week, we all saw the video of the fan that climbed up on the catch fence. Well, that wasn't the most odd thing we've seen at Bristol throughout the years. Automatically, the two vicious wrecks into the crossover gate come to mind, one by Michael Waltrip and one by Mike Harmon in the Xfinity Series. But there's a crossover that's lesser known. When Bristol was first built, the track didn't have a tunnel going underneath it to connect the infield to the outside of the racetrack. To enter or exit the infield, all traffic had to go through a gate in the outside wall. All right. If you fell out of the race early, you had to sit in the infield and wait for the race to end before you could leave. That had to be pretty painful to do. I've done that. I'm, as oh, a little really? kid, yeah. yeah, dad would crash out or something. We'd be sitting Ugh. there. I got a, that, that picture of me standing in the tires stacked up yeah. with dad and his car in the background. Oh, yeah. It's Bristol. Yeah. He wrecked on pit road. First race with Richard Childers. 
tears his car up, and we're stuck in the infield watching the race all night. <laughs> you probably liked it. He probably I didn't. Re- to get the hell I don't out remember there. it, but boy, I promise you, I was having fun. <laughs> I didn't care anything about Dad being out of the race. I'm hanging, hanging with pops. Well, in the March race in 1969, Bobby Isaac started from the pole, and he was whooping them pretty good, leading 249 laps. With only 52 laps to go, a radiator hose came undone and caused the engine to blow. Isaac, he wasn't happy. Without saying anything to his crew, he left the car on pit road and walked down to turn two. He waited for a break in the traffic and during the green flag, (laughs) ran across the track with his helmet in his hands, jumped over the guardrail, and walked straight to his car in the parking lot and drove home. Yeah, during green flag at Bristol. That's insane. (laughs) Last call. Other podcast, Door Bumper Clear. Freddie Kraft, he goes off on fan reaction when Bubba was wrecked at Bristol. Mm. The guys share their bold opinions about the cup rookie, Quinn Huff, and the accident in Texas. They let it fly, man. Oh, yeah. You guys need to listen to Door Bumper Clear, one of the best shows on the internet. Second best show, probably. Yeah, second best show. I mean, they like to say they're the best. Uh, I love the competition. Yeah. Again, I'll ask it. When are we doing a show? <laughs> we are, it is going to be in the works. I'm, I'm telling ready you. to debate these fools. Yeah. Well, it's going to be tough to debate Brett. Brett. He, he's, you know, yeah. he, he knows everything. Let's get it. But let's, I love him, let's, though. Let's get in the room. Make it happen. <laughs> Lost Speedways. Don't forget, Peacock TV. Go download that. It's free for Xfinity customers. You get the premier service. All right? If you're Xfinity customer, you get the premier service. Check out the live YouTube chat that Mike and Matthew did last week. It's posted on Dirty Mo Media's YouTube page. They talk about how the show was made. Make sure you put in an Apple Podcast review. Mike isn't here and hasn't done any of the reviews for a while, but we may bring that back. We like the good ones. <laughs> yeah, of course we yeah, do. Yeah, we get a chuckle from the others as well. <laughs> yeah, we uh, actually had a really cool review come in. A lot of it's feedback, okay? Uh, oh, yeah. And... and, and you know, we like feedback. We love feedback. And Hammer Wedge said, uh, "The oh, <laughs> this I like this one. The only feedback: less Dillner, less Davis, more the girl on the monitor, Leah Vaughn. Oh, nice. <laughs> so somebody loves you. I didn't. I'm not Hammer Wedge. It's not my burner. Uh, uh, TLD57. Paul Morris podcast was epic. Uh, he knows how to tell a story. It was downright entertaining. Definitely need more guests like him, which I like because Dale." Those are the guests that aren't like the marquee names yeah. and sometimes they're the best stories. You're One right. more real quick for you uh, from JRE119. Mark Martin, finally, the elusive interview. It was everything we could have hoped for. Well done. This season has had so many great interviews. Keep up the great work. Uh, well, that, that's a great review. Such a great compliment. I appreciate it. Um, and, and the best component to our podcast is the TV show. Yes. Dale Jr. Download this Wednesday. All right, at 6.30 on NBC Sports Network. You guys get to see how we do the show, um, a little bit of our guest. Obviously not the entire podcast, but you get all the good nuggets. And now it's time for vacation. Uh-huh. Right? Going on vacay. Um, but we're still going to have a big show for you guys next week. Uh, don't forget, it's going to be a great show. Can't wait for you guys to – can we tell them who the guest is? Uh, unless you want to announce it on Twitter. No, nah, I don't. No, Robbie, tell him. Robbie Gordon is going to be our guest next week. We rarely uh, introduce the guest for the next show this early. So this is a little, uh, if you've stayed if you stayed plugged in for this long and you're still listening. You get a you cookie. You will know, yeah, Robbie Gordon is the guest for next week. 
All right, man. Ray Evanham, what a, it has been a great year. Yeah. Mark Martin, Ray Evanham, a lot of other great interviews as well. Robbie Gordon coming up next week. Man, Dale Jr. Download is cranking them out this year. Awesome show. Have a good weekend, everybody. Enjoy Kansas. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo.